Hello and welcome to Film Church Radio. This is the podcast that treats cinema as a religion. It's Sunday. Here's Lewis. <laughs> and I'm Brandon. <laughs> and we are here to talk about movies. Each week, Brandon and I alternate picking a film for us both to watch and discuss. But this week, we are continuing our 2023 director retrospective on Stanley Kubrick. Um, we have been watching chronologically the films of Kubrick and discussing them in detail each week. This week, we are discussing The Shining from 1980, starring Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall. We are joined by a very special guest this week, um, my friend, Brandon's friend, friend of the show, Andy Zyke. How are you doing, Andy? Good. Thanks for having me back. Welcome yeah, excited, back. Excited to talk about this film with you. I know you like horror, and this is pretty much one of the essential horror films, so I'm glad that you've joined us for it. Um, yeah. Awesome. Before we jump into the actual film, um, we'd like to say thank you to everyone who has been listening to the podcast and sending their love for the show. If you're new to the show and are enjoying it, be sure to subscribe and hit the bell to be notified when a new episode is available. This is a film church, so we post episodes on Sundays. And if you really, really enjoy the show, please share it with your friends. You can find us on all the social media platforms at Film Church Radio, where you can leave us a comment or send a message about the show. We post extra content on our YouTube as well, um, so you can go over there and and watch that and um, we'd also love you for you to rate and review the show on whatever podcast service you're streaming from helps people join the congregation listen to the show join in with what we're doing here that's the main goal um before we do talk about the shining though we want to catch up with andy um normally we would talk about the films that brandon and i have been watching but we do that every week so let's mix this up a bit and let's talk to andy about some films that you've been watching recently um so we're going to get to that, but what else have you been up to recently? Like, what have you been doing since your last appearance on the show? Have you seen any films that have particularly blown you away? Hit me with them. Yeah, sure. Um, just up to the, the normal life things, work and life, just like everybody else, right? Um, which kind of sometimes interferes with, with getting a chance to watch some things. So most of what I've been doing recently is more TV show based. But since we're a film podcast, I did go back and and look through like some of my ratings and some of the things I watched recently. Um, one thing that I actually really enjoyed doing, not to not to be that guy that comes on the show and talks about watching the show or listening to the show, but I did do a, a couple watch-alongs with what you guys were doing uh, with nice. As of Glory and The Killing. Those were two that I had never seen that have been on my list forever, and I figured, well, you guys are talking about them now is the best time to to watch and then listen. Um, so I did watch those two and really enjoyed both of them. I know we were talking a little bit offline about them, um, but two like really, really interesting films, very different films too. Um, but watched those uh, parlaying like Paths of Glory. I, a few weeks later, I watched the All Quiet on the Western Front, um, which I thought was just incredible, phenomenal film. Probably my favorite film of last year, uh, 2022. So that was definitely uh, highly recommended. And then actually just today I watched a movie, <coughs> which 
I don't want to give it like a strong recommendation, but I figured I watched it today, so I'll share it. Uh, it was called The Wonder with Florence Pugh, uh, or Pugh, I think it is. Yeah. Also yeah. on Netflix. Um, a little bit, a little bit slow, a little bit of a different type of a movie, but um, it, it was okay if you're into the, those sorts of like period type films. Awesome. Yeah. Florence Pugh is such an interesting actress. Yeah. She's so versatile. Yeah, I just never know what she's going to do next, which is exciting. Yeah. Yeah, she's great. Yeah. Um, love her and everything I've seen her in anyway. So has your perspective, Andy, has it changed at all since you were last on the show? Like your perspective of film in any way um, now that you're a part of this film religion? <laughs> um. I think that the biggest thing I know I touched upon a little bit, but I, I really loved being able to watch a couple of films and then listen to what you guys were talking about and kind of hear your thoughts on just personally, whether you liked it or not, your thoughts on how it was made, the different components of the film. Um, and, and it's, it's so different to listen to an episode about a movie maybe that I haven't seen or a movie that I've seen however, however long ago, but to have watched, with the intention of you know going back and listening to your to your episodes, watching Paths of Glory, watching The Killing, and, and then listening to what you guys hear, just to me it added a different layer to that experience. Um, to to hear what you guys have said, it, it almost makes me want to go back and revisit them now, knowing what you guys were talking about. Yeah. Um, so in that sense, definitely watch those two films differently than I would have anything else. Yeah, that's definitely the best part about Film Church for me is like now that we're you know several episodes in. I can go back and watch these movies and then like listen to what we said about them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Especially... I always do the same thing with like Paths of Glory. I, I watched it first and then read about it and like did some research for the show. And I was like, I need to go and watch it again. So like, yeah. I end up watching most of them twice. <laughs> mm -hmm. Have you guys ever done or have you considered doing like, uh, like a second episode on the same film? I don't know. We haven't, but I'm sure. Like further down the line, we probably, we may. Yeah. Um, I mean, there, there's films that we've talked about, especially in the trailers section that I know I say, you know, it, it didn't do much for me this time, but I want to revisit it. And I am thinking like further down the line of maybe picking something that I want to revisit as opposed to, you know, something. But that is interesting. Yeah, I would, I would be interested in maybe doing something like The Seventh Seal again, like doing a, mm. a rewatch and then just seeing what I think about it again now. Or just like yeah. a, a film, because like, or like one of the film, you know, because like with that film, we, I had just seen it for the first time when we uh, did our podcast on it, and I think that's a film that I, over the years going back to it, you know, my perspective of it might change, and then it'd be interesting to do another one. Yeah, similar with um, Seven Samurai as well, because mm -hmm. I don't, yeah. I don't, you know, you don't really have time to watch it more than once before you know you record the show. So it is nice to, it would be nice to kind of go back and revisit it again. But Morbius? Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's the song that keeps on giving. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe Morbius oh, 2? Morbius. Yeah. Did you know that, that, that Shazam 2 has like, did a less big, I don't know what I'm trying to say, did a lower opening weekend than Morbius? Well, that I, I think yeah. that just I think that's probably for the fact that Morbius brought in a lot of Spider-Man fans. Yeah, 
Spider-Man is just that big that people will go see Morbius. I think a lot of people went to see Morbius for the meme, too. Yeah. Like, to, yeah. to say they went to see it. Well, and... especially after it came out, too, because everybody said it was yeah. horrible, and the people who didn't see it were like, I have to see how horrible this is. <laughs> <laughs> well, Shazam is interesting, too, or Shazam 2, because it's kind of like a throwaway film now that uh, the whole, like, DC universe is supposed to be, like, a hard reboot but yet yeah. they had this one kind of left over in the can. So they were like, all right, here it is. You, you guys like the first one. So I wonder if people are just kind of, oh, I can skip this. And then once the reboot starts, get back into it again or something. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. It's been, been a bit nasty recently, yeah. but that's DC for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, last time you were on, we talked about American movie um, and a film that I think Bran and I are both very thankful that you um brought to the film church i mean have you received any feedback or anything about it since you were on um the the show yes i've had a lot of people that i've i kind of shared the episode with that have you know really enjoyed it uh friends family um not too many people have checked out the film just because it is kind of a deep cut yeah um, yeah or like a very like niche type of movie um, but there's been one or two people that have said to me like, Oh, I really enjoy documentaries. Or, I really enjoy just seeing how people make a movie and they've added it to their list. Um, which, which, Hey, I'll take it. Cause again, it's such mm-hmm. a niche film that I'm like, Oh my gosh, if you're even considering watching it, that's a win for me. Yeah. Yeah. I was so glad film, you picked it. I recommend movie. everybody checks it out. Yeah. It's a, it's a great, it was almost my, one of my top picks of last year, but I decided to keep it off the list cause it was a documentary. That was literally the only reason. Because <laughs> I was just picking narrative films. But yeah, it's a great movie. I'm really hoping that he gets like a really nice like Blu-ray release at some point. It des- I mean, I know it's been on the Criterion channel. It deserves to be in the Criterion collection. You know, like a really... It really does. Yeah, yeah like a really, really nice edition somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, I keep my fingers crossed all the time that we're going to get it. Yeah. All right, Andy, so... Are there any films or filmmakers that you just have to recommend to anybody that's listening right now? Uh, doesn't necessarily have to be anybody that you've watched recently, but just kind of like your film gods and film relics. I was trying to remember what I what I said last time. So this is either yeah. going to be like spot on or it's going to be totally different. Um, in, in the spirit of what we're talking about today, I think, you know, a lot of horror directors out there, if you're into horror films, make some really good stuff like the John Carpenters of the world. Toby Hoopers of the world. Um, I'm also a big fan of Tim Burton and just the the style. It's it's not like really horror, but definitely more like uh, like macabre type, you know, and and kind of dark and and uh, that like that type of a, of a you know, I guess mise en scène. You would say not to get like yeah. too home school mm-hmm. here, um, but love love all of the Burton films. Um, I'm also a really big fan of Spike Jones. And I know he doesn't do too much, um, but I just everything Spike Jones that I've seen is creative to me and, and just a super enjoyable watch. So I would recommend Spike Jones. I know maybe not everybody has watched like her or Adaptation or a few of his other films. He hasn't done too many, but they're all really, really solid movies to check out. Nice. Awesome. Um, talking of like people, films or filmmakers that we want people to check out. What is your relationship with Kubrick before we jump into the film? I mean, I know that I feel like anyone that goes through film school like has some kind of history with Kubrick. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. like, 
Like, what's your relationship with him? Um, I I'm trying to remember the first Kubrick film that I watched. It it might have actually been The Shining. Um, The Shining is definitely. I know you guys have a, a ranking, which we'll probably talk about later. Um, The Shining for me is definitely my favorite Kubrick film. Um, maybe it's because it was the first one I watched, but I remember watching it. Uh, because I liked horror films, uh, my older sister was the one that was like, hey, here's a really great film you should check out. Um, was probably a little bit too young to watch it when I first did, <laughs> or at least to fully understand it. Um, but I remember just really, really loving it and loving it to this day. Uh, I did watch um, 2001 when I was like preparing for film school, when I had like made up my mind of, I want to go to film school. I want to try this film thing. So I was like checking off the, you know, the, like the most universally acclaimed films, like that type of a thing. Um, also really, really enjoyed that one too. I know that kind of polarizes people based on like how, how slow of a watch it could be. Um, there's a few films that I, I don't enjoy that a lot of people do, but for the most part, I think, you know, I like the Kubrick films. I know they come with a lot of like, I guess you'd call it uh, like history in the sense of, the way he would film them or how he would treat people on his sets and, and different things. And it's a little bit of like, you know, a, a, a loaded watch in that sense. Cause you're, you know, and maybe we'll talk a little bit about that today uh, for the shining, but that's always like a little awkward. Um, but you can't argue how quality they are and how entertaining they are. Even if you look at something like the killing or paths of glory, which are from, you know, yesteryear, black and white, very, different styles of film, the way they're made, are still just so entertaining. And you sit there and you're like, wow, I can't stop watching this movie. Even The Killing, The Killing's like, what, 70 minutes or so? Mm -hmm. um, it's incredible that someone is that talented to just you know, kind of uh, capture your attention so well. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Perfect. Well, without much further ado, let's get on to your favorite Kubrick film and jump into our feature presentation. The Shining, 1980. He came as the caretaker, but this hotel had its own guardians who'd been there a long time. Jack Torrance accepts a caretaker job at the Overlook Hotel, where he, along with his wife Wendy and their son Danny, must live isolated from the rest of the world for the winter, but they aren't prepared for the madness that lurks within. This, I think, is probably the, the most popular Kubrick film. Yeah. In terms of the amount of people that have seen it, I think everybody that you talk to knows this film. It's universally yeah. acknowledged, like most people have seen it. If not, they know bits about it. Mm -hmm. um, been parodied everywhere. Um, so what's everyone's relationship like with it? Uh, Andy, I know you said it's your favorite Kubrick film. Brandon, what about you? Um, so this is probably only the third time that I've watched this movie. Uh and it's been a while since I've watched it. So I kind of rewatching it for this was kind of felt pretty fresh again. You know, I couldn't remember everything about it. There's all there's all the iconic stuff, of course. But <clears throat> I always I mean, before I saw this movie, of course, I just had always known what it was. I don't know when or where, but it's just like you said, it's one of those movies that is just automatically exists somehow and you don't remember <laughs> you know ever yeah. hearing about it it just always was <laughs> um 
And I always assumed that this was just the most terrifying movie ever, you know, that, and like, as a kid and, and getting into my 20s, I wasn't like a huge horror fan. I wasn't like, horror wasn't exactly the genre I gravitated to. Um, now I love it, of course, but um, I still, you know, I meet people who are, you know, huge horror fans and I, um, even though I love horror, I, I feel like I would be a poser if I was like, I'm a, you know, horror fanatic. Um, but rewatching it this time, uh, I don't know. It was like I watched it, and it's it's like every with any Kubrick film that you go into, it's been interesting. Like going on this journey of watching them one by one, at, you know, in chronological order, because you can't you have to wipe all your expectations off the board. Like going into a Kubrick film, if it's one that you haven't seen. It's got absolutely nothing to do. Well, it it does. I mean, there are like themes that cross over, which is interesting. But as far as the kind of movie it is, it's completely different than anything else he's done. Um, and it's not like to me watching it now as a you know almost thirty three year old. It's not that scary. The, the most terrifying thing to me watching it is Jack Nicholson. Like, he he really seems insane. Like, watching this movie, you're convinced that that's not a character. That is an insane person that you're watching. So that part of it is terrifying. Um, and then, you know, I just I kept thinking about it, you know, over the last few days um, and thinking about it, and I realized I think what's connecting for me in this film is the acting is the performances it's jack Nich nicholson and shelley duvall this film is even though like you know the hotel is big you know the set design is big i mean it, with any small kubrick film it's still going to be big but in comparison to other kubrick films this is a small intimate character study to give these actors the chance to like dive into the, to this craziness. Right. Um, to the point where this could be a play and it probably has been, I didn't look it up, but there's such few actors and it's all pretty much one location that this could be a play. And I think once I kind of looked at it from that perspective, I was like, Oh, this is actually really a lot more interesting now to look at it from that, from that angle. So I rewatched it again. And I think, well, also, like, Jack Nicholson as an actor has never been somebody I've been drawn to. So I think, you know, going into it, that is also hard to... Um, it's it's hard to love a movie if you are not drawn to the actors that are in it. Um, it's and a big I, hurdle. Yeah, and I don't know if it's because Jack Nicholson has always played unlikable characters to where that line is kind of it's hard for me to not see Jack Nicholson as like an asshole. <laughs> and he's, he, you know, I don't know what he's like in real life. He might be a great guy. I don't know. But, you know, it's like, it's, I don't know. This is, I think this, 
watching this now a couple of times in the last few days, I think I'm now warming up to Jack Nicholson a little bit and being like, okay, there's there's a reason he's got an Academy Award and that he's been an A-lister for so long, you know. Um, Shelley Duvall, on the other hand, you know, may, you know I want to get into it. We don't have to right now. Also deserves just as much recognition, in my opinion, as Jack Nicholson in this movie. Um, but yeah, that's kind of where I'm at and, and where I've kind of landed at this moment. Um, but yeah, what about you, Andy? Yeah, yeah, you touched on a couple of things that that I think are really interesting um, in terms of like the the scariness of the film. It's it's not you know when based on the amount of you know pop culture behind the film and like Lewis was saying, it's there's parodies of it and everybody has heard of this film. You would you would think it will be really really scary, but yeah. it's not really like a jump scary film. It's it's more atmospheric and like slow churning and the music that comes in just sets this mood that just is, is like very off-putting, which is very terrifying in its own regard. Um, but I think it's so interesting to have a movie like that from that time period. Um, mm -hmm. Like nowadays we see that a lot with horror films that are very more atmospheric, less jump scary, more like smart scary for lack of a better word than cheap scary. Um, but this is something that came out in 1980, right? Like 40 years ago. Um, so that, that's super, what's funny, maybe it was cause I was, I was younger, but when I first watched the film, um, I was not a big fan of the Shelley Duvall performance. I yeah. thought it was annoying. I thought it was overacting. I thought it was just like, every time she came on the screen, I'd be like, oh my gosh, this, I guess similar to how you might've felt about Nicholson and being an unlikable character. It was just, oh my gosh, I, I don't like this this character. I don't like this woman. Um, having learned a lot about what she's had to go through on the set and like all of the stuff that we might talk about, I've softened obviously on that stance a, a little bit um, when you know like what someone's like mentally going through, especially dealing with a director like Kubrick who is like infamous for repeatedly going through takes or making someone change like syllable emphasis or something, <laughs> just doing it over and over and over yeah. again. You can, you can relate a little bit more. Um, but yeah, the first time I watched it, I, I remember just really just being like captured by it. And I think it's, it's a combination of the music and the, the setting and the tone, um, the way that he films it, the different, the different shots, like those opening, uh, helicopter, I was going to say drone shots, but they don't have drones in the eighties or seventies. Um, but that's like opening like helicopter shots, following the car through the, the forest, the steady cam shots that he has following Danny through the hotel, like just, just moments like that, where you, you just can't help but watch and continue mm -hmm. watching. Um, another thing real quick, I thought you, you said it was interesting too, was how it is like a, a smaller film in the sense that it's like a character study about these people. But I love the dichotomy of, the film being that like smaller feeling that small character study in this just massive hotel where you know there's there's all these different rooms all these different areas of the hotel like probably places that they don't even explore but yet you're focused on three characters four if you count uh scatman crothers character um, forgetting his character's name but uh, you're focused on these yeah, you focus on these these three to four characters in this just expanse of a of a location is so interesting to me because you would you would think oh that's not a bad gig like I'll I'll hang out there for three months and there's all this stuff to do and there's grounds and there's 
all these different things. But at the same time, there's that loneliness and that, that sense of just that stir craziness, you know? So I, I love that, that kind of counterplay. Yeah. What about you, Lewis? <clears throat> I have seen this film more times than I can count. I <laughs> love this movie a lot. Um, I, you know, got the shining t-shirts, got shoes, got seen it in the cinema, you know, bought every release of the Blu-ray that there possibly is, you know, watched it again and again and again. What um, is on the shoes? I have to ask. Yeah, I was so, thinking that too. Is so it a carpet pattern? Um, it's actually the, um, the the yellow poster. So it's like just loads of little, like the shining light with a little poster. And then on the back, it says room 237. Nice. You'll have to take a picture and, and put that on social. Or I something. will. Yeah, That's I awesome. will. Um, yeah, I can't remember when I first saw The Shining. I've been aware of it for a long time. Um, that I, I seem to remember that maybe on the VHS, there was the the picture of Jack Nicholson at the door. And I think I've said this on a previous show before, Brennan, that that is so far removed from who Jack Nicholson is to me now that yeah. I can never, like, it seems like a different person. When he puts his face into the door crack, I'm like, it doesn't feel like Jack Nicholson to me. It still feels like this other person that I was so, like, enamored with when I was a kid. Yeah, Just I was, like, who is I was, that? I was thinking about that when rewatching it this time because that particular shot is pretty separate from the other shots in that sequence. Yeah. That it that yeah, it just it feels like almost an insert now because mm. you've just that's it's just so seen famous. You see yeah. 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 Um and when I'm watching it, I smile like an idiot the whole way through. I think <laughs> if you're like if you're next to me, you're like, what is this guy's deal? Like he really loves the fact that this guy's gonna kill his family. <laughs> and it's not. I just love the film so like every every line of dialogue is super quotable. I just, you know, the there's certain inflections from how people say things that feel so unique and so different that I just, you know, I can't get enough of it. Um, it's one of the rare cases where, because it differs, you know, from the book, I also love the book as well. You know, yeah. I love the different, the ways that they take it. It feels like two separate entities. Yeah. Completely. Um, yeah. it's. I'm, I'm assuming it, you saw the movie before you read the book. I did. I read the book when I was maybe 16 for the first time. Um, and I think a lot of it went over my head in yeah. terms of just like going crazy and, and what they were seeing. I didn't quite, I don't know if I didn't get it. I just didn't quite put it together. What was happening, you know? Um, cause the book is, there's a lot more in the book about the history of the hotel. Um, right. But, and yeah, the, like I, the bushes like come to life and stuff, right? Like, yeah, yeah, there's there's no maze. It's all like toperers and they kind of mm -hmm. like they chase after them and stuff. Um, yeah. So it is a little bit different. It's more fantastical. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of it's a lot more like in your mind. You know, there's a lot more in there that's kind of, you know, are these characters really seeing this or is it just like in their head? Because we change the, you know, it goes from Danny to Jack to yeah um to wendy all the way through so but yeah i mean i mean i feel like the it. movie does that too but but more subtly yeah. you know yeah i mean the bushes don't come to life but like there's still supernatural things going on and yeah. you you have to question is this in their head or is this really yeah. happening and in terms of 
yeah, exactly. And in terms of it not being scary, the Danny on the on the um, on the tricycle on the cut light driving around the hallways still fills me with fear. And mm-hmm. I know when the I know when the um, when the Grady twins are going to show up. Like I know what point yeah. of the film it is. I know what to look out for. But still, that the sound of the wheels sets something off inside of me that I'm just like, there's something scary going to happen in a second. You got to prepare yourself. And it doesn't matter yeah. how many times I see it. It's still like my stomach drops when he turns the corner and he sees them. Yeah. And what's What's cool about that is that they they have it's not the same shot, but they have that same set piece multiple times where you're following yeah. him throughout the the hotel, and sometimes nothing happens. He's just out for a stroll on his bicycle yeah. and then other times he runs into possessed twins who appear <laughs> dead sometimes yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, what would you guys in your personal opinion what do you think maybe maybe you answered this already though but for both of you guys what do you what is the scariest part of this movie like is, is there a scene is there a, a set piece is there like a, i don't know if it's the character but like what do you guys is the scariest part I um, think I, I think when uh, Jack goes into room two thirty seven and sees the old woman, or the lady, you know, he sees the woman and then she turns into an old woman. And I've talked we I've talked about this before. We talked about because we we talked about um, recently a couple of horror movies that we watched. What were they? Barbarian and uh, X. X. Yeah, where it's like this this whole like trope of like ooh old people are gross and like you know <laughs> or yeah. whatever um and in this movie it's really scary like it and but i mean it's it's not just that she's old like that's not why it's scary it's like her body is like she's she looks kind of like a zombie she's like decaying know? yeah yes she's decaying and I, it's just that laugh, you know, like when he's like freaking out and running away and she's just there like laughing and decaying. And it's just, I think because maybe because there might be something psychological going on there where like, even though Jack Nicholson is terrifying when he's going on his violent rages, you're still kind of on his side a little bit through the movie. I mean, he's the the main character of the movie, so you're kind of forced to be in that perspective of like wanting to cheer him on. And this is a moment where he's like vulnerable. And you you're like kind of scared for him because this guy that you th- you think is the most terrifying part and like the masculine part of the movie is now being terrified himself. Yeah. I think yeah, I think that that is um i think when i was you know when i first saw it that was like it's absolutely terrifying i think now that i've seen it a few times it's philip stone's um delivery of corrected them when he's talking about his family in the bathroom and he's like he needs to be like the whole the way that he gets his mouth around the word corrected is like so terrifying for some reason i don't know what it is it's just that it's whole so, like mundane and bland yeah but yet still he he says it a certain way i know what you mean yeah and it's just it's so jarring because you're just like i know what you're talking about like we know that you killed them with an axe like you know um and just the fact that you can you know you know what's coming and um yeah it just every that scene every time just like 
unsettles me so much. Um, yeah, there's, there's, there are a lot of like, again, not like scary, but just that like unnerving feeling. I yeah. Mean, when I was younger, to me, it was it was definitely the the woman in the bathtub mm. and like the can like that the the laugh like that whole scene. You know, as as a younger child, I don't remember how old I was when I first watched it, but that's like the scariest image I would say. But the more I watch it, and like the the slow turn of of um, Jack's character and that scene where he starts to chase Shelley Duvall, like the, the, like the beginning of it, she finds the, um, the lovely typed out manuscript, um, which I would love to know whose job it was to like format all of those, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like all the different like, indentations and font sizes and everything. Um, that was probably a fun job maybe. Um, but that moment where he's kind of like chasing her up the stairs. And at first you think he might be trying to like comfort her, be like, no, 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 it's okay. Like this is what's happening. But then there's a moment where you just, where it turns and you realize, oh, this is just an insane person at this point. And he's talking about bashing her head in and killing his family. And you're like, okay, this movie just went zero to a hundred, like right here. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's kind of terrifying. Cause you're, you're kind of lulled into like Brandon said, rooting a little bit for this character because he's your main character and he's former alcoholic and you're like okay we just want this guy to pick up a job and treat his family well and he loves his family and this is the whole thing but yet he turns into this this monster almost um so as i watch it more that that turn is a little bit unnerving for me too yeah Yeah, i think i think that's nicholson's best performance that scene yeah I i think so too the way that he he talks to Wendy in the way that he delivers his lines. I mean, the the thing that I quote the most from The Shining is where he goes, light of my life. And he like really kind of bites into the words. And it's just, it's, do you know when someone has annoyed you to the point where you're having to repeat yourself and you're like, I'm going to literally spell this out for you if you don't like, you've got to understand this. And it's such a, it, he does it in such a way that you can just tell that he is past the point of like just being annoyed <laughs> by Wendy's presence yeah. is the point where he's like, I'm going to, I'm going to kill you, you know? And then the, the yeah. next words is I'm going to bash your brains in, but it's just the way that he just, it, it, all of it is just phenomenal. And that the part with the typewriter where he's like, even if you don't hear me typing, I'm still working. That's, that was actually um, Jack Nicholson's line that he put in there because um, he, he like, he wrote a lot of films like when he was first starting out Um and his first marriage, he said those words to his wife because he was like, I was trying to write and she kept kind of coming in and disturbing me. And I was like, even if I'm not typing, like I'm still working, don't come and disturb me. And he's like, obviously that marriage broke up. But when I was in that place with like Stanley, I was like, hey, this is going to go in. This is like exactly is how real. I felt at that time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's interesting. It, uh, before we started this Kubrick series, I would have said that Kubrick was a horror filmmaker um, based on The Shining, of course, but also based on 2001 A Space Odyssey and A Clockwork Orange. And now after re-watching The Shining, like, well, going through the series, watching all these films, re-watching The Shining... I'm starting to question if maybe all of his films are actually comedies <laughs> in his mind anyway, <laughs> or satires. I mean, obviously there are 
for sure comedies in his in his work but part of me just feels like he is just laughing the entire time he's making these movies I would hope not, knowing <laughs> what he does to his actors. Like that just seems a little like masochistic. But I know, I know what you mean. I'm, I'm I mean, it's good. like Jack Nichols, Jack Nicholson's performance in this movie is beyond insane. It's like cartoonish, you know. Yeah, which works still for insane, but it's like it's literally, it's just so out there that yeah it makes me wonder if he's like trying to set to your eyes, like, you know, the family home or like, you know, America or like, I don't know. I don't know. I I feel like there's an argument there. I'm not sure exactly what it is. I think there's an argument that this movie is actually a comedy. Um, but, but, but I mean, yeah. I think you're tapping into like Stephen King's biggest <laughs> issue with this film is he's like, you know, in the book, Jack is normal, trying to get back up on his feet, taking anything he can get just to kind of provide for his family, slow descent into madness until he tries to kill them all. Whereas, like, I think Stephen King says something along the lines of, like, the first time you see Jack Nicholson in the office, you're like, yeah, he's going to try and kill his family. He's insane. <laughs> like, there's no, yeah. like, you know, even in the car when they drive into the thing, he looks like he hates those people, like, he hates them so much. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you also get that bit too towards the beginning where um Shelley Duvall is speaking with I think the uh it's like a caretaker for Danny or a nurse or something. Mm -hmm. And she tells the story about how he when he was on dr drinking alcohol and was like abusing alcohol hurts Danny, like hurts his shoulder yeah. or something like that. And sure there's I guess a case somewhere in there like well you're impaired and you know out of your mind in a certain way but there's also the other side of that case where you're like, well, if, if you were able to do this before you went stir crazy, you know, couple it with what Lewis is talking about, these scenes of him, like just appearing off and like a little, like something doesn't seem right. And then jumping into him, just going apeshit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, I think that, I mean, and that's one of the lines from the book, especially that's always stuck out to me is they go, um, when Danny, I mean, in the book, Danny gets attacked by bees and they go and take him, or is it wasps? One of the two. They take him to a doctor before the snow sets in. Um, and the doctor asks about the dislocated arm and Jack tells the story. And then Wendy says, oh, it was an accident. And Jack says, no, I meant to do it. In the moment, I meant to break his arm. And like, it's like, and then, you know, the narration is kind of, that's the first time he was honest about it. Like he didn't really know until he said it that that was what he wanted to do, blah, blah, blah. But that's kind of the whole thing is that we're never really sure what we're capable of until we get in that situation right like mm, yeah. everybody is like everyone is capable of doing this all it takes is just like a few nudges in the wrong direction and you're there yeah yeah which kind of, i mean i know you're talking about the stephen king novel but i mean yeah. that that ties that does tie back into like the themes of kubrick of like of violence being yeah um you know and and a deeply rooted human thing yeah um, exactly um again i mean i think that kubrick is just so in love with cinema and what it can provide and just making it as much about what we're seeing as what else is like what we're hearing and stuff like that that all of these are going to be 
all of these the things that he's taken from like texts and books are just going to be completely out there. You know, it's just, it's not going to be shooting what's on the page. He's going to take it and be like, how can I make this as cinematic as possible? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but also I think he was trying to do, I think this, this movie is also an experiment for him because he's, he's pushing the boundaries constantly with, with all these films. I mean, in his last film, Barry Lyndon, he was pushing the boundaries of, the technical side of filmmaking and using lenses and, you know, matching the perfect lenses with the perfect cameras. Um, and in this, you know, this is kind of diving into the documentary, you know, room two, two thirty seven a little bit with the idea that he was, uh, using the techniques of subliminal advertising in this film. Um, which I I didn't do my own research in the documentary. They say that uh, he that they know he had discussions with these TV advertisers that were using subliminal advertising in television commercials, and you know learned their techniques so that he could do that in this film. And if that's the case, that that kind of it's kind of the perfect film to do that because, like we talked about, this is a a smaller setting a more controlled environment, you know, where he, the whole set is built and he can, you know, make everything exactly the way he wants to. Um, it, it makes me wonder how much, how many layers of this film there are that we don't realize where there's like these subtle psychological things going on in our brains when we're watching this film. For instance, like, uh, Andy, you talked about, like, being annoyed with Shelley Duvall's character. I think that's the case for a lot of people. I've heard a lot of people yeah. say that about her. I um, think we're supposed to. Uh, yeah, exactly. I think that that's, you know, not only is that what Stanley directed her to do and what she, as an actress, performed, um but there might also be a lot of like layers of subliminal stuff going on that we don't even realize that push us in that direction of like rejecting her. Somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. I think that Kubrick is definitely playing with our perception of film because when we see someone in this kind of position, they fight back and they're strong and they're independent and they get it done. Whereas Wendy can't even open a bathroom window. You know, we get to that point where she's like, she can't hold a baseball bat very well. Like she's not swinging it to hurt. Like the whole thing with the knife, you know, it looks like, you know, her, her lists, her, her list, her wrists are so limp that she can't like, you know, get any strength there. She can't, you know, it's all these things that I think as a cinema goer and as a lover of movies frustrates you um, subconsciously because it's not what we're used to. We're not used to that kind of heroin. Yes. But at the same time, she does hit him in the face with a baseball bat and she does cut his hand with a knife. Like she, she does, she yeah. does kick ass in the movie. She does save her child. Like she does do all of these things that we sh really should be rooting for her hardcore. Yeah. You know, um, the only people, there's only two people that die in this movie and it's Jack, the main character <laughs> and oh. Dick Holleran. Like, yeah. <laughs> I think the scene that pushes me to the point with Wendy is where she's she has knocked Jack out and she's dragging him to the pantry and she's trying to open the door 
and we can and the camera is positioned so we can see that the pin's still in and that goes on for like a minute of her trying to open this door with the pin in and you're like just take the pin out just take yeah. the pin out we're <laughs> fine he's waking up get him in there take the pin out um <laughs> but it takes a while you know yeah that, but that's I, an element of horror films though is that exactly you yeah. know that like Suspense. i don't know like dumb protagonist like you do the thing where you run back into the house or like instead of you know going to find help you decide to split up or like all these like when you watch a, a horror movie i think a lot of people have these like, tropes of why are you doing that? Like, don't do that. Yeah. That's you're gonna die. <laughs> but not only, I mean, it's not only a trope, but I think it actually is a real thing. It's like when you're in a dangerous situation and you're panicking, you, 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 you're not in your right mind. You're, you're yeah. just like freaking out and you don't, you don't, you're not thinking straight. You're just trying to, you're moving like in slow motion almost. Yeah. And yeah, you um, put the carpet before the horse sometimes. Yeah, exactly. But I do. I mean, I do want to sing some praises for Shelley Duvall a little bit for a second because I think that she doesn't get enough credit for this movie because, yeah, and I, and I think that thankfully the trend is starting to move in her direction now, but um, I mean, we can't really know. I mean, there's tons of interviews and stuff out there um, and there's people who say that you know there was abuse going on on set and there's people who say that there wasn't and that he was nice all of the interviews with Shelley Duvall she seems pretty normal you know like yeah. the, when she's talking about working on the movie she seems it's it's a job you know and and yeah. she talks she talks about learning a lot from Kubrick and stuff and learning more from him than she has from anybody else and i think it's it's probably a little bit of both, you know. I'm sure that Kubrick and Jack Nicholson were terrifying on set at times, and that they did things to try to push her in the direction that she needed to yeah. go, uh, yeah. potentially. But at the same time, even if they did do that, I I think that if you if you have that mindset, it discredits her acting ability, because at the end of the day, she's still there doing her job looking terrified on camera and freaking out and she does an amazing job doing that yeah exactly i mean she um had worked with robert altman just before and then went after this was finished and did popeye with robert altman again mm -hmm. and altman was like it was like a completely different actress she had just changed so much in just making this one film yeah. Um, I mean, she's always been very complimentary from what I've I've read. You know, I'm, I'm, I haven't read everything, obviously, but um, of working with Kubrick, like you said, and that the experience was something that she'll treasure, you know, forever. Um, I mean, obviously, there are reports that he did push her and shouted at her quite a bit and like made, you know, made her feel a little bit isolated. Yeah. But I'm sure in Kubrick's mind, that was to get the best performance from her. Yeah. You know, we've talked about his experience with actors before and how he would push them and ask for as much as possible from them um, and then ask for a little bit more. Um, yeah. And I think that it's just, we're just seeing a different, something that wouldn't be allowed today, but was, you know, for the sake of pure cinema, that's what happened. He was yeah. allowed to get away with it because he was making these films. Yeah. 
Well, you touched on something too. I think that's super interesting. And like, obviously, only Shelley Duvall will will know how she was feeling, mm -hmm. right, and what she wants to share. But I, I feel like you can go through an experience that might be difficult or troubling or something that you might hate in the moment or just want it to be over with in the moment, but then look back on that and say it either shaped me as a professional, shaped me as a person, or you might just see an experience that you had a chance to work with an excellent director and your stance might soften now that you're removed from that. So I, I feel like that could be a possibility too, is yeah. as to why she's always so positive about it, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, my two favorite scenes are of her performances in this movie is when that, that scene that you were talking about, Andy, where she has this monologue where she's talking about Jack harming Danny for the first time. And she, you, like the way that she just kind of explains it away is I think it sets up the character really well because you're, you're like, Oh, poor lady. Like this guy does not deserve your defending him <laughs> like at all. Um, and then later on, right after she locks Jack in the free or in the, the pantry <laughs> And he's like, Wendy, and she's like walking away and he's like, Wendy, and she turns around just exhausted and she's just like, yes. <laughs> like, I think that's my favorite like bit of her because it's just like, so she's like obviously done with him, but there's still some, he still has some kind of hold over her. He's redeemable in her eyes. Like he could still come back from this. Yeah. Yeah, and it and it just comes across in that one that one little yeah. line. Yeah, I think like you were saying, this way this time we watched it, I especially was paying attention to it to performance, and I think that it does get better every time that you watch the film. I think the more that you realize kind of what she's trying to portray, the less annoying it is, and the more like sympathetic you feel for her. Yeah. Um, this time, I really appreciated her relationship with Danny. I think that you like it's like she I don't know it's such a believable performance as a mother and son you know she's so nurturing I love the scenes where they're just like running out to go like when they're walking around the maze together and you can you know I, I, I guess it wasn't improvised but it has that feeling of being just like them two hanging out you know yeah. it all feels so natural um yeah, yeah she's phenomenal the only part yeah. like that I was that didn't feel believable but rewatching it was after she locks Jack in the freezer the next time you see her well she goes and sees that the snow cat is like destroyed and yeah. then the next time you see her she's like asleep and that's when Danny writes red rum with the yeah. lipstick on the, the wall and it's like why did how did you go to sleep <laughs> after that yeah <laughs> she just like was out <laughs> I mean, and the only this is like a stretch. Like I, I would not be able to sleep no matter what in the situation. But like, maybe in her mind, she's like, okay, he's locked away. He yeah, can't yeah. get at us. I'm or, just like emotionally exhausted now. It could be some yeah. supernatural thing going on there that you could mm -hmm. explain or something. But well, cause we don't know. I mean, yeah, go ahead, Andy. I was just gonna say we talk about the characters, right? And we're talking about Jack and and Wendy and Danny, but the a huge character of the movie is also the hotel itself. Mm. And, and it sounds kind of weird to, to, to say, but there are so many moments where their hotel 
has influence over other characters or moves along a set piece or does something to impact the story, whether it's affecting someone's psyche, like when Jack is at the bar and interacting with the ghosts and Lloyd and, or, or even, uh, you know, learning about how the previous caretaker corrected his family. There's, there's so many moments where the hotel has this influence over people that I wonder if you, know, you talk about the supernatural, maybe that's the hotel keeping her there in a way, in the way that it keeps Jack there at the end or the way that it yeah. keeps other people there. Like maybe that's its, its way of having that control over her instead of Jack having a control over her. Yeah, well, we don't even know what the time frame is. I mean, this is something that I wanted to get onto, but like when we cut back to Jack, he is asleep. Like he's obviously woken up, you know, he's, his head injury has kind of like subsided a little bit. He's got empty packets of food around him. So he's obviously been like eating. You know, we don't know if it's like an hour, a day. I assume that that's kind of like the time frame, but it's, you know, it could be longer than just overnight. You yeah. Know, that he's been locked up in the, in the room. Um, and that is one thing that this time around, I really noticed that I feel really adds to our, um, like our feelings when we're watching the film is that it's, it's so disjointed of what is happening. I mean, the first, we get like a title card that says the interview and the next one is four months later. And then it's like Thursday, Saturday, and then it stops or, you know, and we're like, where are we? Like, this does not make sense yeah. in terms of like, why are you showing us this? This is not, this you is know, not a structure. Okay, is, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's not a way to structure a film. Um, and I think that it just really plays with your like, I don't know, discomfort while watching it. It's like, I don't know where we are. I don't know what is like, where, when in time is this happening? You know, um, and it's such a weird thing to put in i'm not sure like the reasoning behind it you know yeah what's interesting it does... too is it's all kind of framed by her trying to raise the police on the radio reaching out to uh scatman's character to to come back and then like the whole like trek of like scatman having to get this machine that can take him through the the snowfall and like yeah it 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 appears like it's maybe overnight, maybe a day, like you said, Lewis, but yet there's still, it's almost as if the hotel again has like a different sense of time. Like if maybe you're in there and something is off, it's moving slower. It's, it's, it's like relative yeah. in a different way, like moving slower or faster, but there, there's like a, that, I don't know, I guess it just confuses you more to have that framing device of, Oh, well, here's the journey of Dick's character to go back to like quote unquote rescue the family over the course of a couple hours to a day. But yet you're seeing things like you mentioned, like it, well, it appears that Jack is locked in the pantry for could be a day or two, even with yeah. what he's eating and how he's doing. And like, it just is that sense of confusion, you know? And I think that adds, mm -hmm. that's like a, a horror element in and of itself. Yeah. 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 It's so like discomforting. You just don't feel ever that you're, get into grips with it as a film yeah. you know as soon as you feel like okay okay it's it's the interview you know we get that we get the story of the caretaker that killed his family and jack nicholson's just sitting there like with his eyebrows up not really <laughs> just like well okay that sounds awful <laughs> you know um ah oh, yeah it's um it's such a masterly like masterful way of making a film and i just love it 
So, Andy, I know you're a big horror movie fan. What, uh, how does this fit into the overall history of horror films? That's that's a, a really good question. Um, I, in in the spirit of the church, I've prepared like a little sermon to give, <laughs> like a brief little uh, a brief little thing. Um, I know I've talked about this a little bit. The last time I was on horror is my passion, right? Horror films. Um, when I was in college, I did a whole like a uh, like term paper, I guess you would call it, on the history of horror films. So it's something I like to think I'm I'm pretty well versed in. Um, the Shining is is like weirdly situated in because it came out in, in 1980, right? So like it's situated between two decades, um, and so when like like when you look at the history of horror, it's easy to kind of clump it into decades based on what's going on in the world and what is what people are afraid of, right? Or what what types of things are scaring people. Um, so some of the stuff that was going on like pre-1980 like 60s 70s is more of this like sophisticated highbrow type of horror but also what what i would call like mundane horror so like if you look at like the 60s you're looking at something like psycho which is like an incredibly like psychologically driven horror film um you're looking at like rosemary's baby night of the living dead which people say is like a huge allegory for the vietnam war at the time so like all of these like very like cerebral type like thinking movies not necessarily like the jump scare movies which the shining certainly falls into that category right so that's mm -hmm. going on um and then into the 70s you get horror that's more critically acclaimed so like things like the exorcist or like carrie jaws for example jaws also an example of that like mundane horror right just going to the beach and, and a shark um, so it, it's it's in this like weird sense of it has these the shining has obviously the critical acclaim now not necessarily when it came out um, but has that that critically acclaimed highbrow sophisticated horror to it it has those elements of like mundane horror just a guy who's doing a job at a hotel and, and happens to go insane um, it's it also falls like in a weird interesting point because what's really popular then in the 80s and like towards the late 70s is uh the slasher film so you're thinking of like friday the 13th halloween you know nightmare on elm street all of like the, the quote-unquote the classic horror movies that people would consider but also really big so things like hellraiser the thing where people are literally like exploding on screen alien where like aliens are coming out of your chest um and the shining is is really not that excess um so it, it almost feels as if it's it's in the 80s which it's taking place around these these films that are you know bloody and gory and, and over the top um and a lot of those were over the top because people were very desensitized to seeing what was happening in the vietnam war so you're seeing these real life monstrosities and tragedies and just crazy things happening on the news. Horror films had to take that to another level. And so that's why you're seeing like aliens bursting out of people's chests and, and insane things. Um, but, you know, to have The Shining almost be a film that is released in the 80s, but resembles more of those films in the 70s, that highbrow, cerebral thinking type horror it's in this weird space, right? Because at the time people didn't like it when it came out. People thought this was a weird movie. It was almost like too cerebral to, to a fault. 
Um, and it wasn't until later decades when people really started to appreciate it more. So it, it's, it's, I don't know, it's situated like right in the middle of this weird point in history where it's like a little bit beyond this curve of the psychos, the Rosemary's Babies, like those really critically acclaimed movies, The Exorcist, but also right at the time where like insanity was happening in horror, just over the top, bloody, gory stuff. Special effects were really taking off. Think of like the Evil Dead, where there's mm -hmm. just it's yeah. all red all the time. Um, so it's it's an interesting point. That that's where it slots in like the overall like film history of horror canon. Um, I'm glad that it you know as time went on, people were revisiting it and really kind of celebrate it today for for what it is as a movie, as a horror movie, and, and as a, as a good movie too. I think a lot of people these days will look back on it and even if you're not a fan of horror, you'll find something in the movie you like, whether it's a performance, an act scene, right? Maybe you just like the parodies from, you know, Simpsons Treehouse of Horror or something, right? There's a connection to it. And so I'm really happy that it, it has kind of, kind of come through in that sense over the decades, um, especially as like, you know, 80s and 90s become a very different type of, of horror than, than what it was. Um, and it could be because nowadays we're back in that mindset of these like atmospheric, cerebral thinking type horror films. And maybe that's why there's a, a greater appreciation for it. But that's my, that's my sermon for today. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> amen. <laughs> it is. Amen. Yeah. It, it is interesting. Yeah. Coming from that perspective. I wonder if that's like, if that's cause Kubrick, had such an appreciation for all the horror films that came before and maybe not an appreciation for the new trend of gore um, that he was like, well, what if I, you know, kept going in that direction that horror films were going before they deviated into this crazy gore thing. It, it's almost as if he, he sees these films like, you know, when Rosemary's baby came out jaws, like these films that are tapping into that mundane horror and that like cerebral horror and then wants to put his like Kubrick stamp on it and like take it to the next level of, well, let's have somebody really be in the mundane where there's no one else around. It's just them and their family and they go crazy or really take it to the next level, you know, mentally in terms of what's real, what's not real. Are these ghosts? What's the character of the hotel and what's the supernatural element to all of this? And he, he does the Kubrick thing where he like cranks it up to 11. Um, when everybody else is is trending in a different direction um and it's interesting to look back on it right hindsight's 2020 where you can the, the movie sticks out like a sore thumb in that in that era um yeah. but i think that's to its, its benefit nowadays is it something that people will revisit that was so different and at the time people might not have appreciated that because they were like oh we're, we're over this like thinking stuff we want to see blood and guts and red special effects and all this stuff the corn syrup um but they were given something very different so yeah yeah i think it's one of those films that transcends genre mm -hmm. like when it's on lists of like all oh, the greatest horror movies ever made i have to stop and be like is it a horror because i just feel like it's just not i don't it shouldn't be pigeonholed as just like one type of thing i think there's so much going on in here that to kind of just it's not what it shouldn't be one genre, you know, it seems to be everything, yeah. But at the same time, Kubrick marketed it as a horror film and mm -hmm. called it a horror film himself, yeah. So, 
I get and his, it. <laughs> but also, and, it's like, was that a trick? <laughs> yeah, I mean, going back to what you were saying, Brandon, about the um, about like adverts and kind of using that in like part of like you know the subliminal messaging and stuff like that. He absolutely loved like adverts. He would have his sister record um, football games and send him the VHS tapes over to England so he could watch them. And he was more interested in the adverts. He he thought it was like the highest form of storytelling that you could get this whole story across in 30 seconds and, yeah, and still sell the thing. Um, and to the point where this film, he had started like a, a trailer campaign on TV. I think it was on ABC because he had worked out that that was the channel that had the most 18 to 40 year olds that watched it because that was the demographic he was going for. And they started in around Thanksgiving to Christmas of 1979. And the film was released summer 1980. And it was estimated that by January, 85% of the American households had seen this trailer 11 times. Holy crap. I wonder if that's why they also didn't like it, because if you see a trailer too many times, it can ruin a movie for sure. Maybe they're over it, yeah. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Like, we didn't get what we thought we were getting. Yeah, and um, so it just, like, racked up in terms of, like, anticipation. Like, he was not going to have the same thing happen to Barry Lyndon where it just died in the U.S. Um, Yeah. And a lot of his films took a long time to make money back just because of how big his budgets were. Um, but this was his quickest film to make back and make of, a profit of all of them. Mm-hmm. Wow! Yeah. One of the other interesting things about like when you look at a film in film history is that not necessarily a horror thing, but just in general, yesteryear films were always a little bit more definitive. There was a there was a natural conclusion to it. There was a natural either point of view or a voice of, of what they were trying to say in the film, like whether that was a theme or whether that was just, you know, an entertainment popcorn factor. Like there was always a little bit more of a definitive to something. And nowadays we see movies all the time that are very artsy, a little more avant-garde. Um, it might not have like a natural conclusion. You might formulate your own conclusion. Yeah. Uh, I feel like Inception kind of popularized that back at like, what was like 2010, 2011. Um, of that, well, we don't know what happened. The film just ends, or even The Sopranos, I guess, right? It just it just cuts. Um, but back in in the day, I feel like that wasn't as easily accepted. I think people wanted something a little bit more finite or definitive to wrap their head around, and and maybe people saw it and they were like, "Oh, I feel ripped off. Like this movie doesn't end. Like this makes no sense. To heck with this film. Like what is this?" Where nowadays people are like, "Wow, this movie's great." <laughs> Yeah. yeah, and I feel people talk about the enigmas of The Shining so much that when you do watch it, it doesn't seem that hard to grasp for me. You know, there's certain things where I'm like, I don't really, like, I don't know what that's about. But, you know, especially with the the guy in the dog costume, um, I'm still a bit like, you know, now that, because, you know, in the book it kind of explains it a little bit. But when you're watching the movie, you're like, what the hell is that? Like, what is yeah. happening in there? You know, um, but especially with like, even earlier I turned on, like I just flicking through YouTube and there's like a whole thing of like the ending of The Shining explained like yeah. satanic question mark. And I'm like, <laughs> to me, it seems pretty obvious. You know, I feel like I watch it and I'm like, okay, he's part, he's always been part of this hotel. This was like his destiny to be here, you know, but it's seems... in like the photo at the end, like you yeah. think he was, uh, he's like reincarnated or something. That he's just one with the hotel. Like he's just been 
Mm. Like he's like tied to it now. Yeah. Like that's who he is kind of thing. I, I, yeah, I kind of agree. Like, I think that there are a lot of, you know, there is that enigma. There is that sense of, oh, if you watch The Shining, be prepared to be confused or to have a million yeah. questions. And like, yes, it is a, a movie that I think it's better to understand the more you watch it or the more you like take the time to actually like digest it maybe is, is a better yeah. way of saying it. Um, but having seen it multiple times, I feel like it does get a little simpler to, to me. And like, I think, I think our viewpoints are somewhat similar, maybe not exact one for one, but I feel that he just, you know, just like everybody else that, that died at that hotel at some point in time, never ended up leaving. And you could say that's yeah. a supernatural, spiritual ghost thing, whatever. Uh, but but he just assimilates into the hotel. He dies at the hotel. He assimilates into the hotel. He appears in the picture, and everybody's always like, "Wait, was he was he alive at the at the New Year's party in 19?" But no, he wasn't there. Just like the ghosts yeah. weren't there when he was sitting at the uh, bar, right? But yet yeah. they were. So that's yeah. how I think of it. I think he just became a spirit, a ghost, whatever whatever word you'd like to use. Then he just mm. assimilated into the hotel and. He, he appeared just, in that picture in that moment. There he was. Yeah. Yeah. He's just a part of the party now. Yeah. Yeah. The guy at yeah. the bar. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> I kind of want to get in a little bit to the documentary Room 237, which I know a lot of people have seen who've seen The Shining. Um, Cooper one... Conspiracy Corner. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when I, I did rewatch it the other day. But one of the biggest things that stuck out to me was uh, somebody in the documentary said that the, the movie is the ultimate shining. Uh, and they were talking about it in terms of um, the subliminal, subliminal advertising. <clears throat> and I started thinking about that and I was like, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Uh, because the shining, quote unquote, in the movie, uh, Dick Holleran says that it is a gift where you can communicate without using words. Yeah. And it, it makes me wonder, okay, well, how much, I mean, I've already said this earlier, but it just reiterates that idea of like, how much is being communicated to us subconsciously by Kubrick's trickery? Yeah, I mean, the whole way through is that feeling of unease. And I think that's part of Kubrick's, um, like, gift. It's just being able to, sh like, to put things on camera that you can't nat naturally write down. Right. You yeah. know? Um, but, yeah, I think that all that, the subliminal messages stuff is is running throughout it, definitely. I, I feel like the that idea, though, that, that unease being, like, a a tactic or whatever you want to say, a, a, a creative choice. Like, I don't think it has to be a conspiracy. I think it could just be someone who knows their craft very well. Obviously Kubrick does someone who's really good at their craft, like Kubrick and just made a, a hell of a good movie. And we was able to yeah. play with lighting and play with yeah. dialogue or sound or music or, or whatever it is and, and take, you know, what you would learn in a film school as, Oh, you know, setting your lighting this way, creates this effect or you know incorporating yeah. this type of music like like dissonant string music is always in horror movies like just someone who knows their craft who's probably a perfectionist and 
the way that he, he creates his films and has meticulously gone through these details to, to make it perfect and to make someone feel that way. Like, yeah, there's, there's so many conspiracies, right. About Kubrick, you know, did he incorporate this over here for this reason? Is it like a religious yeah. allegory? The whole, like, did he, did he do the moon landing thing? Like there's so much crazy shit. Yeah. Um, but I think some stuff is that he was just a damn good filmmaker. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that once you get to know and you know how meticulous he is and how like um, in depth he is with everything, it's hard not to read into every single frame. Yeah. And that everything was put there for a reason. But sometimes it's just happy coincidence. You know, yeah, sometimes exactly. things are just end up in there you know that's why the moon landing looks so real right it's because yeah. he was i'm kidding i'm kidding <laughs> <laughs> well the so the the three things that the documentary besides the subliminal messaging the three things and you guys have kind of already answered this so you know it can be long or short whatever yeah. but the three the other three things that the documentary brings up is or the points that it makes is that uh that the shining is about the holocaust uh, the Shining is about the Native American genocide, and Nature The Shining is about the moon landing. What are your thoughts? On I think the Native that... American genocide is a very compelling argument. Yeah. One thing that's really interesting about that, too, is if you look into like how they made the movie, where they made the movie, the, the interior was on a, a stage, like they constructed a stage, but they based it off of a certain hotel that had these like Western native American influences, which is, is yeah. kind of interesting. And like, it could be nothing. It could just be a style choice, right. For, for the way that they're like set decking the whole, the whole thing. But you know, if you, if you want to go down that path, it feeds in really well to that narrative. Yeah. Yeah. I think that with the moon landing, I think his daughter quite recently said something about for, you know, along the lines of for a man who, spend his whole career um, searching for truths, do you really think that he would like do that to the public? Yeah. Like, you know, to that extreme where he'd work with the government to fake something that huge. Yeah. Um, which, yeah, I don't think he did anything <laughs> related yeah. to that. I think we're good there. Um, it's a fun conspiracy though. It yeah, is. Exactly. Yeah. As I mean, a fan I... of like film and, and, you know, how you can, how you can film something and create, you know, like a fantastical world or a fantastical story. Hmm. I'm not saying I believe it, but it, it sure is a fun conspiracy to think <laughs> exactly. about. Like, where did yeah. he shoot it? Yeah. How did they do it? Like, who did they get? Yeah. I yeah. think I think the documentary is largely bullshit, but it is. I feel like it is a much watch, must watch, and it is a lot of fun to watch. Yeah, and and think like mm, maybe. Even if it's all crap, though, the good thing about it is that people like this film is so incredible that people are making documentaries about what a can on the shelf means <laughs> yeah like that it's insane it's insane you know um but it just shows like the artistic um like just how important this film is um just in history you know basically um but there's also one technical like achievement here that we haven't really talked about um and that's steady cam yeah, something that was not at all widely used. Kubrick was kind of the first person that would adopt it and use it in such a way. You know, it's not just one scene or two scenes trying it out. The majority of this film is shot using Steadicam. Yeah, 
And um, it holds up. It's not like, oh, yeah. this is an early version of it. You can kind of tell or whatever. No, it's really fucking good. To the point really that good. it makes me long for this old style of Steadicam. Because now yeah. everybody's using these like uh, AI-based Steadicam. Like you can get, you can now get Steadicams for like your phone. Like you can get like a, a Steadicam that's like 300 bucks. Back then a Steadicam was like $50,000 or $100,000 mm-hmm. or whatever. It was a lot of money. Um, but now anybody can kind of do it. But like, people don't really know how to do it. Like there's still, there's still a, you still need a human element to it. I feel like just as, as a filmmaker myself and watching steady, you know, quote unquote steady cam become so much cheaper. It's, it really annoys me when I'm watching something that I can tell what kind of steady cam they use because it's like going along you know, it's pretty smooth, and then all of a sudden it just kind of goes whoop and like veers over or yeah. something, and then they they bring you know they bring it back in, and yeah, I don't I don't know, yeah, it just annoys me that like yeah, it you need you still need like it's it's not as good as it used to be, <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah, um, exactly. but they use it beautifully in this movie, and it kind mm. of. Uh, like rewatching it this time, I realized how much it mirrors, like the the opening shot, like the opening shot, of the helicopter shots mirrors the the Steadicam shots of following Danny on the bike, and then again yeah. following Danny through the maze. Like it all just kind of it all feels like the same, almost like you are a spirit, you know, you are a ghost yeah. that's just following these people along through the movie. Yeah, you just can't comprehend how different this would have been if you were an audience member in 1980. Mm-hmm. Like just subconsciously not, you know, going and just knowing what you've seen already put to film and then seeing something that is this fluid and just moves with this kind of freedom must be terrifying. Um <laughs> like and just that's so such an interesting that's such an interesting concept to bring up like to to almost take a a step back and and view it from like a, a third party pov right if you're sitting there mm. watching this film at the time because like what just popped into my head was when citizen kane came out and how citizen kane implemented all of these what today seem like super simple technical achievements like depth of focus and and placing actors foreground midground and background and like you don't even think twice about that today that's almost like a given of what happens in film yeah. But, but that movie being the first time, if you sat in a theater and watched Citizen Kane in was it nineteen forty something or thirty something, I think forty something, and you experience that for the first time, to sit there and say, "Wait a second, that guy is like all the way back there. Like, what's going <laughs> yeah. on?" And, and it's the same to me with Steadicam today because you see it in in everything, action films, horror films, like that 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 tracking shot of following someone through something or or guiding someone through something is. It's such a common a common thing you don't even think twice about it especially rewatching it but when you sit and you're like well, this was one of those first films that that implemented this technology and, and you have to wonder what it was like to see that for the first time and be like oh my gosh we're we're moving yeah. with them now yeah. like what yeah. where are we going like what's happening i mean that's how i would have been in the yeah for sure the yeah. Theater, but it's got yeah. one of my related to the steady cam one of my favorite kubrick anecdotes um he got sent, when he was preparing for The Shining, he got sent like a demo reel of about 
22 to 24 shots of the Steadicam as like a, just like this is what it can do, you know, from the person that kind of invented it. And he was like enamored with it. He absolutely adored it, wanted it on his movie, wrote him a letter, wrote the guy a letter who had invented it. Just like, this is incredible. So good. You might want to remove the 12 clip because I can see your shadow on the ground and I've pretty much developed it myself. And if you're wanting like to keep it secret, people are going to copy it. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And he like hired him and he kind of, the guy, I think the guy that invented it does the Steadicam work on The Shining. That's perfect. But it's just like how, like nothing is left untouched. He's just like, I know now how you did it because I can see the shadow. Yeah. It's, and it's tough it's to, a... we talk a little bit about like how at the time when the film came out, like it wasn't super appreciated and super well reviewed. And it's tough to, to be like students of film or, or, you know, people that go to the film church, right. To keep on tact. Uh, and, and know that people didn't really appreciate things like what we're discussing, a steady cam or yeah. the fact that it is more of a cerebral movie. And you think like, Oh, well, back when Citizen Kane came out, people were really invested in that. Or even if you go earlier, there's that movie where one of like the first ever movies where the train like moves towards the screen and people freaked out and ran out of the theater <laughs> because they thought the train was going to come through the, the yeah. screen at them. <laughs> I'm like, where were those people when, you know, those types of, of moviegoers yeah. when The Shining came out? Like, <laughs> yeah. Wow, this is phenomenal. Like, we're moving with this camera. What's Like, this is a, a master craft of, of cinema. Where were those people running away from the train, right? Like, yeah. that's, the type of, that's the type of vibe and reaction I was, I was hoping for when, when I was reading about, like, initial reception to this. And unfortunately, that wasn't the case. Yeah. People didn't yeah. know what they were getting. Exactly. I feel yeah. like they were probably so creeped out that it just turned them off. Yeah. <laughs> Which I guess the movie probably did its job in, in creeping everyone out, but but then they were like, eh, it wasn't good. Yeah. Was like, no, it was supposed to do that. Yeah. It was, I guess, American life or just any life and was just a, it was a different way of living. And I guess people had different you know, day-to-day lives, different morals, different values, different ways they viewed things. And like today, everybody is so open and comfortable and, and expressive and you can, almost anything can be accepted, right? Or interpreted and just ahead of its time is the is the phrase yeah. that, that comes to my mind. Yeah. Speaking of shots though, I freaking love the shot when Jack Nicholson is swinging the ax to the door and the camera just follows him back and forth. Yeah. It's freaking amazing. Every time I see it, I'm like, oh, that's so good. It is yeah. so good. <laughs> I, did he improvise the Here's Johnny line or was that written in? He improvised you guys it. Know? He yeah. did improvise it? Okay. Yeah. I thought I had heard something about that because uh, yeah. Johnny Carson was big and it was like his way of just kind of... Um, it's, 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 it's just such a, a classic quote and a classic scene and a moment, right? And it's been parodied and memed and you know yeah i mean that's got to be in the top maybe even three lines of all time i feel like it's got to be just, up there just memorable moments yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i know we, lewis you talked about this earlier when uh wendy puts danny through the window and the thing that the thing that popped into my mind was how the snow was just conveniently tall enough yeah. to be right there at the yeah. window where Danny could slide right and down. down. Yeah. And like nowhere <laughs> else is it is it piled up just perfectly like that. So yeah. as meticulous as Kubrick was, maybe there was like one thing he was like, add 
screw it. We'll just make it. Yeah, we'll just do it. Yeah. <laughs> but then again, could it be the hotel trying to get Danny out on his own? That's, That's what I was just thinking. Could it be a trick of the hotel? Yeah. Does it mean that Kubrick did actually fake the moon landing? Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> All right, I have one more question. Have you guys seen Dr. Sleep? No. I have, um, but a a few years ago, like when it came out, and unfortunately it's not super memorable for me, but I have have seen it. Cool. It might have to be something we watch for Film Church later. Yeah, I do want to watch it. Um, Me and Chelsea were talking, you know, about it, that we need to watch it. Um, And I have the book as well, but I haven't read that. Um, So, yeah. It's on my it's on my to watch list. I've heard yeah. that it's like the director's cut is the better version to watch. Mm. I've heard it's I've heard really good things yeah. about it, um, yeah. but no, I have not watched it yet. So might have to make it a, a film church film. Yeah, I remember it being enjoyable. Like I, I don't remember like disliking it in any way, um, but it it's tough to cons- it, like obviously it's like a, a sequel of sorts, right? Um, yeah, it's it's tough to keep those films tied together because for me personally, the shining is, is so well made and so well done and just a favorite horror film that those are like really lofty expectations and big shoes to fill. And I think maybe that's why I say it doesn't feel memorable to me. Yeah. Um, Or the the fact that I don't remember it, maybe, maybe uh, it would be another part of it, but (laughs) I don't remember disliking it in any way. So nice. Awesome. One of the things I think that this film holds the world record for the most retakes of a single shot. It's like 300 something, right? Yeah. Does Mm -hmm. it, it still holds it? I don't know if it still does. It it did at the time of the biography that I'm reading. (laughs) It was printed. Um, And I think that the, the scene between Danny and Dick in the kitchen took about 60, 70 takes. Wow. And uh, Scamman Crothers was just like, I'm doing it the same every time. Like, what do you want? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I know we didn't talk too much about, about Dick as a character, but such a, such a underrated character, I think just someone who, I I mean, lest we forget, he is the one that tells Danny what he's experiencing, right? You are experiencing the shining. This is what this is. Oh, and I have it too. And yeah. he's, I think Danny is able to communicate with him, right? And that's why he decides to make this trek. Like something is off, something doesn't feel right. And we get yeah. that like really interesting like slice of life shot of his apartment where he's got yeah. like all sorts of crazy decorations and naked yeah. lady pictures. And you're like, what is this guy's life? Yeah. <laughs> but he, he's such an important character in, in, yeah. in the movie and has such a, a, a intense death, I guess, because he's one yeah. of two, right? So yeah. It's, it's axe murdered. <laughs> well, it's the kind of like I think it's the kind of thing where like they they don't nobody is understand understood what Danny the gift that he's got. Danny himself doesn't understand it. He doesn't know how to use it. It's just like him and Tony, who they think is just an imaginary friend. Um, <laughs> but until Dick, like it's it's that that saves him really. Mm-hmm. Like he can he starts to sense that it's coming and can like you know prepare i guess like he he already is like one step ahead because he's been able to let the shine in through you know um he dick does get a better um 
send-off, I guess, in the book. He is more of a pivotal character in there as opposed to here because like we see like you said we see the laborous journey of him getting to the hotel he walks through the door and is immediately like disposed of yeah you know which is really quite sad yeah but i mean spoiler alert in the book he saves the day and gets away alive so he he gets his uh yeah he saves the day nice um, yeah, so Kubrick, one of the last things I want to say, Kubrick had added an extra scene at the end um, where um, Wendy is visited by uh, Mr. Ullman, the hotel manager in hospital. Um, and then he literally like a week before it went into release, he was like, no, get rid of it. It doesn't need it. Yeah. So we just end with the, the picture. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah that's interesting yeah. yeah it would have made it totally different yeah that that ending shot of the picture is also one of those like super memorable moments and iconic moments that when you think of the shining that's i feel like that's the first thing people always talk about is like what was the deal with jack was he a part of this hotel was he not why was he in that yeah. picture how did he get in that picture like imagine if that scene didn't end the film and you end on a on a different note how it would have changed that discussion, how it would have changed the film, maybe how to view the film. It, I think personally, it was probably the right choice to cut it, not really knowing what that scene looked like, but just knowing the the weight that what the like the current ending carries to me. I yeah. feel like that's the the better ending. Yeah, yeah, I agree. He knew what he was doing, Mister Kubrick. <laughs> <laughs> Good job. Um, a little crazy, but he was yeah. he was good at what yeah. he did. Yeah, exactly. Um, anybody else got anything else they want to add before we start to wrap it up? I don't think so. I think I said everything I needed to. Made my piece. The only other thing, just because this is a, a, you know, you talk a little bit about the, the novel, right? The, the Stephen King book. It is a Stephen King yeah. adaptation. Um, there's there's like all sorts of like conflicting reports about whether people feel it does the book justice whether they don't Stephen King didn't like it for a long time but it's like kind of softened it I think from what I was what I was reading that he's still doesn't like it but maybe not as not as worse as he thought but to me I feel like it is one of the the better adaptations I, I think it's just in terms of the maybe not necessarily accuracy wise but just in terms of the, the quality of the movie I yeah. feel like is is leaps and bounds above some of these other King adaptations, which are still good, but I don't know. This, this to me is just in that pantheon of excellent, excellent movies. Yeah, and I think King himself is kind of similar to you. There's a lot of reports where I've read that like he doesn't enjoy the changes made to his story, and like there's things in there that you know he thinks his story excels at, and then Kubrick kind of didn't let it down, like the the descent into madness for Jack, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but he is still like honored that Kubrick chose one of his works to make a film out of. Like he's like a, a filmmaker of this caliber making a film is still like incredible. I might not have, you know, fully enjoyed what he did to my story, but you can't, you know, you can't deny that it's a master at work. Yeah. It's, yeah. A, it's a great recognizes great or something like, yeah, yeah whatever, exactly. that, whatever that catchphrase is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I feel like, I mean, I know King was already popular 
But the yeah. fact that Kubrick made a film out of his book, I feel like just cements his iconicness. <clears throat> Excuse me, iconicness, I guess, Kings. Mm. His his legendary status. I don't know. Yeah, it was just like at this point, I mean, he'd written Carrie and this obviously The Shining had just come out and there was a few at Salem's Lot had been really popular as well. Like these these books that we know today, Carrie had instantly been turned into a film, like a really popular film. Um there were Toby Hooper himself was actually planning um Salem's Lot, like to make it himself around this time too. So there was, you know, there was just so much hype around him that like when Kubrick did this, it just seemed to kind of, you know, just push it past um I guess just like a like a, a flavor of the month writer, which he obviously isn't, but more into kind of like our children's children are going to know Stephen King. Yeah, you know, he's one of the guys. Um, yeah, and I mean everybody knows The Shining. Yeah, and it, it might not be because of the book. <laughs> yeah. Well, cool. Um. Awesome. I mean, if there's nothing else, we are going to guess what we rated the film on Letterboxd. I think this, um, especially for me, is going to be pretty easy in terms of yeah. guessing um, what I rated it. But Andy, do you want to take a pop to see what you think Brandon and I rated this film on Letterboxd? I I feel like for both of you guys, this is a four. Wow. Brandon, what, what, what are you saying? I know what you rated because yeah. <laughs> your letterbox tells me um yeah i've watched it too many because, times yeah you've watched it too many times so the rating was already on there usually we try to um hide that before the show so that we can can guess but i know lewis rated it five out of five um andy i mean of course it's 10 out of 10 five out of five yeah it's gotta be but Andy thinks I rated it four out of five. What do you think, Lewis? I think that especially after going through these, I don't think you I don't think you're quite at five stars. I'm gonna say four and a half. I still think there's something in there that's not a hundred percent for you yet. Yeah. So I'm gonna go four and a half. I'm actually kind of torn. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think maybe it is four and a half. Because, yeah, I think I, I need to watch it a few more times. Mm. Um, I I think something definitely clicked for me this time because I was like, oh, this is a movie about the acting. Like, this is a movie about the characters. This is a movie... Because I love movies like that. Even, like, movies can have a terrible plot, but if it's just, like you're getting to watch this character kind of um, develop or maybe even not develop. The character is just so interesting that you can't help but watch them the whole time. Like I like movies like that. And once I kind of washed away all the other Kubrick that I've been watching and just like enjoyed this for that kind of a movie, it was like, oh, okay. That's this is much more enjoyable than I thought it was. Hmm. So... Yeah. This is one of my favorite films of all time. Yeah. 
Well, I will keep I, watching it then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not five then for you. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. It's just, it, it, yeah. Like I said, I just smile like an idiot the whole way through because I just love it so much. Yeah. I think, I think on my IMDb, I think I have it as an eight. Um, I guess in a, in a similar sense, yeah, in a similar sense to, to Brandon. After all like... that, it's the lowest <laughs> of the three. <laughs> well, I guess that would translate what to like four, probably four and a half ish, yeah. four and a quarter, somewhere around in there. Um, <laughs> there's so much I like about it, but I guess to, to what you thought about Brandon, like there, there does seem to be something to me that isn't like putting the icing on the cake or the, the you know, the bow on the, on the gift or whatever you say, like, sometimes I feel like a, a film can be too cerebral for its own good at times. And I'm not saying that that's what this is, but there, there seems to be a dash of that here and there with this film where there are, and maybe it's just a product of being an, an adaptation too, but there are certain parts of it that just seem to be there and maybe not correlated. Like you think of the, the bear suit or the dog suit, whatever. And it's just kind of there and it, and it's off putting. Right. And you can make the case that it adds something to the, like the nature of the film, but it also doesn't do anything like structurally or plot wise. You just see a man in a, in a bear suit having gay intercourse with another man. <laughs> it just kind of happens. And you're like, all right, that was the thing that happened. Um, and so there's just like little sprinkles for me that I, I don't have it like quite a, a 10 out of 10, but it, it is very high up there for me. Like I don't want to say that to say that it takes anything away. It is a really, really good movie and a favorite of mine. A must watch. <laughs> it's certainly the must watch. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I thought this was going to go easier, but I'm I'm not so <laughs> sure now. Um, we're going to get to the uh, to the Kubrick ranking. This is yes. where we've been ranking the films chronologically, um, and just making an ultimate film church radio list of the essential Kubrick films. I mean, they're all essential, but which one you should start with, I guess. Um. Shall I run down the list first before we decide where to put it? Sure. Okay. At number 10, Fear and Desire. At number 9, Spartacus. Number 8 is Lolita. Number 7 is Killer's Kiss. Number 6 is The Killing. Number 5, Barry Lyndon. Number 4, A Clockwork Orange. Number 3, Doctor Strangelove. Number 2, Paths of Glory. And then number 1, 2001, A Space Odyssey. All right. I'm just going to... I'm not going to dick around here. <laughs> I dig think it should go. Around. Yeah, I'm not going to dig collaring around. <laughs> <laughs> Is anybody here? Hello? Ow. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think it should go right below Paths of Glory. Okay. But uh, is this movie better than 2001 for you? Yes. <laughs> now what do we do um, um I, I i think that we should go what we've done for the other ones um and just you know on the um on you know what our ratings are together um and i think that yeah underneath passive glory is where you know we're both not rating it five stars okay yeah because we both rated so, passive glory in 2001 five yeah okay so that's fine. Yeah, number Coming three. In at number three. Yeah, he's not. He's not salty about it at all. <laughs> no, that's fine. It's fine. 
<laughs> this would be an interesting, like, it's going to be interesting once this list is done. I think a good watch, a way, maybe a good way to watch these movies is our ranking backwards. Mm. If you're doing rewatches. Yeah. yeah. Save the best for last. Not too bothered about watching Spartacus again. Or Fan Design, I must admit. But, yeah. hey, maybe, maybe just when we've those. had some space. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If if I'm going to watch those, I'm going to make you watch the documentaries again. <laughs> the flying um, Pope. <laughs> um, Andy, where would this go in your Kubrick? This is your favorite Kubrick film. Yeah, I think this is this is certainly my favorite Kubrick film. Um, probably followed by 2001. Um, yeah. I, this to me, just being a fan of horror so much, it's like one of, if not his only, like true horror films. Um, I guess your mileage may vary if you think it's a true horror, horror film or not. Um, but it, it's definitely definitely up there for me. Two thousand one would probably be second, just technically what that what that movie is, and still a good story. Still has those iconic moments with with Hal and those iconic lines of open the, open the pod bay doors and yeah. Um, I, I loved your guys' little dramatic reenactment at the end of that episode. <laughs> I was that that brought a smile to my face for for sure. Um, and and surprisingly, you know, watching Paths of Glory, I I didn't as a movie I didn't think I would like just based on the content of it, based on the the year uh, the era that it came out in. I just felt like it might not be something I would enjoy, but really enjoyed it. Um, so good. That, yeah, that might be up there as my number three. Um, I. I appreciate Strange Love and, and Clockwork Orange. Don't love them the way other people do. Mm. Um, there's a few others that I have not seen on Kubrick's list uh, or on, on his filmography, I should say. But yeah, Paths of Glory pleasantly surprised me and, and really went up there on the list. So I'd probably go one, two, three, Shining, 2001, Paths of Glory. That's yeah. a good top three, definitely. Same as ours, but just in a different order. <laughs> <laughs> So, Brandon, what is going to be vying for that number one spot next week? Well, Lewis, next week we're going to go to Vietnam. We're going to be watching Full Metal Jacket from 1987. Can you believe it's going to be the penultimate episode of this Kubrick retrospective already? I can't, but also that's because I've got a little trick up my sleeve. Oh, okay. Kubrick sure. series might not be ending anytime soon. Oh <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited. Kubrick is my new obsession. <laughs> yeah. No, it's been great. Yeah, going through yeah. this. It's been I, I it is hard to believe that it's almost over. It's like we've been doing this since the beginning of the year. We did the same thing with Leone, though. Like we were going through it and we we're like, okay, next week is this, and then all of a sudden we we're like, okay, got one left and it's flown by. Yeah, yeah. So this has been a little different because Leone was repetitive in a exactly. good way. I mean, I yeah. love his movies, but Kubrick is just so out there. I mean, yeah, yeah. every film is like, yeah. where did this come from? Yeah. We'll have to do John Ford next, who's got 140 director credits. <laughs> Sounds good. Just next, never... two, next two years. Yeah, keep it rolling, baby. Or three years. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you can look forward to that in the future, I'm sure. But that brings us to the end of the show. Um, Andy, thank you so much for being a part of it and rejoining us to talk about The Shining. 
it's always great to have your input we really appreciate you being here yeah, yeah thanks, thank dude. you for having me back i uh always love watching you guys go through these retrospectives and things so you know excited to see what's next whether you decide to watch 140 films <laughs> over the next three years or whether you maybe pick a different director of a different different uh you know retrospective of some sort but those are yeah. those are always very interesting to kind of you know watch you guys go through uh like film history in that sense so appreciate yeah. you having me back awesome awesome well you can find the show on twitter and instagram at film church radio and you can follow us individually on letterboxd Brandon is at Selman Scope and I'm at Walker Lewis 3007 to keep up with what we've been watching in real time. We also have all of our back episodes streaming on all good podcast platforms. Please leave us a rating and review so we know if you like the film, if you didn't, and what you would pick for us to watch in the future. Um, thank you so much for being here. We love everyone that listens to this show. We can't wait to have you back next week into the film church to talk about another Kubrick masterpiece. But until then, all I've got to say is... What will you be drinking, sir? Hair of the dog that bit me, Lewis. Bourbon on the rocks. That'll do her. Amen. Amen. (laughs) Thanks again. We'll see y'all next Sunday. Where we're gonna shine. telepathically or or visually whichever way you want (laughs) (laughs) we'll do it anyway